Hey, good morning, friends. Good morning, those of you that are here on site and those of you that are, that are watching us out there on our live stream. Thanks so much for being a part of our worship this morning. We're so, we're so glad that you're joining with us. As, as, as Meg said, we cannot wait to see you in person a week from the day. We're going to be right here on site. Our doors are going to be wide open. Our hearts are going to be even wider open. We want you to come and to worship with us on, on May 31st, right here, 301 Harvard Drive here in Lexington. We're on the south side near the summit. I want to tell you about uh, something also happening this week. Um, there's a, a group of, God's been doing some incredible things in the last, um, I'd say the last six months, nine months or so among the churches, among many of the pastors of, of Lexington. He's been stirring uh, stirring a lot of pastors to come together in a way like no other for the purpose of prayer and unity. I've been seeing that. I've been privileged to kind of be brought into some of those prayer meetings and some of those prayer gatherings. We believe, um, as many of the, the, the senior pastors in Lexington believe, that this is, uh, this is part of uh, this, this runway for revival that God is doing. He's calling us back to prayer. He's calling us back to unity. I want to tell you about an, an initiative starting tomorrow here in the area. Uh, it's called Central Kentucky week of prayer. Obviously, we're still in a time of, of relative uh, self-isolation, so these are going to be all happening online. Here's the format. I want you to know about this, King's Church people, and really anybody. This is open to anyone. But beginning tomorrow, three times a day, uh, morning, lunchtime, and the evening, there will be a Zoom prayer meeting that is open to anyone that just has a heart for prayer, has a heart for revival, each of those sessions is going to be hosted by um, an area senior pastor, an area senior leader here in the Lexington area. Um, it's going to be about 30 minutes, maybe a little bit longer, just, just depending. But again, that's open to, the, that's open to anyone uh, just that has a heart for prayer and wants to be a part of this. Um, of this. So um, I'm, we're going to post information um, on, our, on our Facebook page and also on our website here this afternoon because um, you'll need to have that Zoom link to be a part of it. Uh, but it's, 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 it's every day this week, 7.30 in the morning, there'll be a, a Zoom prayer meeting. At Straight up at noon, there'll be one, and also 7.30 in the evening each day, all this week, leading up, of course, to, to Pentecost. So I want to encourage you to be a part of that, King's Church people. I'll get the link to you guys, and we can, we can jump in and do this. We're going to be in the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew this morning. The title of the message is, You Are God's Gift to the World. I, I heard that phrase come to me uh, several days ago, earlier this week, when I was just praying about, um, praying about the message. And, and I, it's, it's, it's weird. In, in, in times of, of isolation and quarantine, you would think that pastors like myself, we have so much more time, right? We should be strategizing and, and planning ahead. Uh, we've got all this free time in the world. And, and I was talking with some other pastors on a call that the opposite, for many of us, the opposite has been true. We have felt more distracted. We have felt more mentally and spiritually cluttered because we, we're out of routine. I know that's true for many of you. We're out of routine, and routine is kind of what, how we, you know, that's how, what we need to function. Our kids need routine. I need routine. Our kids need naps. I need naps. But I need a nap right now? Okay, not yet. Uh, but I heard this phrase come to my mind that, that the Lord's saying that um, as, as we get ready sort of to, to open up our doors, to sort of go back into 
um, ministry and, and worship and fellowship, um, I just sense that the Spirit was saying that, that we, need to, we need to know that the church of Jesus Christ is a gift to the world. And our particular corner of the world is Fayette County, Lexington area, wherever you are, maybe Justman County, you know, some of you a little bit farther out, wherever you are, but the church is God's gift to the world. And I want us, you know, especially as we begin to open our doors, I want us to be driven by this understanding that we do not exist for ourselves. We exist for Him, ultimately. That's our mission statement. We exist to what? Honor Jesus Christ the King, but also to expand His kingdom in the world, in our community and around the world for the glory of God. That's why we exist. We're God's gift. Bringing the kingdom is a gift to the world. So I, wanna, I just kind of want to jump into Matthew 5, read through a little bit of that uh, this morning. But first, as you're going there, I want to talk about a movie from the early 1980s. Do you guys remember the original movie, Superman? Not Superman 2, 3, all those, but the first one. Do you remember the first one? With, with uh, what was his name? Yeah, the, 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 the actor who played him. Christopher Reeves, that's it, yes. So this was like, yeah. And if you remember in the story, um, I, didn't, I didn't watch this week, so my memory may be a little bit off. But it seems like there was a part of the story where young Clark Kent, teenage Clark Kent, you know, he was, he was from outer space, if you don't know it. He was a superman. He's got all these superpowers, all these incredible things. And as a young boy, he's, his, his ship crashed into Earth, and he was adopted by Jonathan a farmer in Kansas, Jonathan Kent, maybe not a farmer, whatever he was, Jonathan Kent and his wife. And they're raising up this boy who obviously is not of this earth. And in his teenage years, in this particular scene in the movie, you see Clark struggling with this identity of who am I, what am I supposed to do? And there's parts where he's like on the football field and he's got his friends, you know, all of his peers around there and he's, you know, kicking a football and it's flying, you know, a quarter of a mile away, right? And he's, uh, you know, throwing a football and it's going off into the other county. You know, and there's a part where his friends are kind of, you know, not including him. He's kind of having some struggles here, and they go, they go peeling off on the car, and Clark goes running, racing faster than the car, beats him onto the other side of, of, of the town where they were going. And the car pulls up, and they're looking at him like, Kent, what, what, what's going on? Didn't we just see you? And all of a sudden they say, you know what, Clark, you're just, you're just weird. And they go hauling off. Look on his face just like, oh. Of course, dad comes up right about then, kind of gets a sense for what's going on and asks him about it. He says, son, you've been showing off again, haven't you? And the look on young Clark Kent's face, you know, basically, yeah, yeah, dad, I have. He says, son, he said, son, I know it's difficult. You have all these powers. You have all these gifts. And you just can't use them. You can't show off with them. He says, son, I don't know what you're here for, but I know it's not just to score touchdowns. I can tell you, as a church, I think we have not just been put on this earth just to score touchdowns. Right? Amen? And it's easy to score touchdowns in ministry and in church in America. You know, you can look around at this house that we've got, and you could say, this is an incredible touchdown. We need to fill it up with trophies. We need to fill it up with, with banners of all the great things that we've done. We need more things. We need more, you know, programs. We need all these things. But I, I'm convinced the Spirit of God is saying, look, we have been destined for something greater. 
We have been meant, you and I, King's Church, we, we have been put in this place, in this community, in this season for something more. What is that something more? I think we're God's gift to, we're one of it. Hear hear my heart. I don't mean that we exclusively, right? But the church of Jesus Christ has been put here for such a time as this. So I want to look right here at Matthew chapter 5. By the way, some people say this is a, we would call this the Beatitudes. It's kind of the old English, the old English term for this section here, the blessed ours, blessed art, you know, and some folks say that this is actually a self-portrait of who Jesus is in himself. And we're going to read through it, and I think, I think, he's, I think that's exactly right. Let's, read, let's look at this together. It's up on the screen if you don't have it. Matthew 5, verse 3. By the way, Jesus is teaching um, this part of all of that discourse. He's out there teaching on this mountain, Mount of Olives, and all the people are gathered, you know, just listening to him. He's got authority in his words. He's got power in his words. They, they want to hear what he has to say. I'm walking all over. The camera guys are going crazy. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I feel like I'm staying put. I wonder what I'm going to say. That was a good thing about being in the lobby. I had to sit down. I'm staying here. So he's teaching. He begins to say things like this. He begins to say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will, be seen, they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Does this sound like Jesus to you? And it does. That's exactly it. And it not only is a picture of Jesus, it's a picture of what he wants to do in you and I and what he wants to do in his church. He wants to make us poor in spirit. Anybody here poor in spirit? Know anybody that's poor in spirit? That's what he wants for you and I. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven will belong to you and I. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. You know, I love this word meek. We tend to think of meek as meaning, you know, like, uh, like um, uh, just as weak, as, as sort of the, the, the puny kid, you know, who always gets picked on in the playground. You know, that's not what meek means here. You know, that some of, the, some of the, the, the people who study this say, you know, we can, we, can, we can liken the word meek to being power under control. Think of it like a horse. I remember one of the, last year we went to, um, we went to, where do we go? Williamsburg, Colonial Williamsburg. And out of Williamsburg, they have, you know, a lot of the, the, the old, kind of the old timey stuff, people in costumes. And we happened to be walking by a cart that was pulled by two oxen. Now, a confession here. Up until recently, I thought oxen were a different kind of animal than a cow. Anybody brave enough to admit that you thought that too? So I'm there, and I'm looking, and I'm like, these are the biggest things I've ever seen. And they said, yeah, they are ox. This is an ox. And they were harnessed up there, and it turns out an ox is just a cow, a bull that has been trained to pull, that has been trained to work under a yoke. And meekness is not just weakness. Meekness is power under control. These oxen, by the way, these were monsters, they stood taller than I am. Their backs were about up to here. 
A good ton each, I'm betting. They were not weak by any stretch of the imagination. They had incredible power, but it was controlled. They were directing their power for a purpose. And that's exactly what, what meek is in this in the senses, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful. I love this. Blessed are the merciful. I want, I want God's church to be known as a merciful church. I think he wants that as well. You know, I think we can, we, we can, we can have righteousness and justice, but still show mercy, still be a people of mercy and compassion. Blessed are the pure in heart. I remember one, one time I was looking at this and somebody said, to pure in heart. I asked, what does that mean? What does it mean to be pure in heart? Does that mean that, you know, we, that we, uh, that we like, you know, remember, you know, look the right way, that we practice holy? What does that mean? And this individual said, well, to be pure in heart is simply to will one thing, to be single, to desire one thing. That's what, uh, that's how Jesus was. He had one consuming desire to love and to honor and obey the Father. He says, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's a picture of Jesus, but it's also a, a, a portrait of the kingdom and the church. And he wants us, and what he wants us to become. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Y'all, that day is, that day is here. That day is not coming. That day is here. We're living in a generation like this where people will speak hatred towards us when they will slander us because of the name of Jesus. When they will accuse us of things that we have not done. When they will label us with things that, 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 are, that are unfair. And Jesus says, if that, when that happens to you, consider yourselves fortunate. You and I, we're going to be fortunate to be reviled and to be hated for the cause of Christ. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But I want to land here on verse 13, 14. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everything, everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light, what? Shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let me pray for us and we're going to get into this. So Father, we just, we ask Lord for just a, a Matthew 5 kind of spirit, Lord, to, to begin to move in us in a fresh way this season. Father, make us pure in heart. Lord, let us mourn for the things that you mourn for. Let us be meek, Lord God. Let us hunger and thirst for righteousness. Father, show us how to be merciful. Show us how to be pure in heart and peacemakers, Lord. Show us how to endure persecution with joy for your glory, Lord. And Lord, show us how to be salt, how to be light. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus calls us the salt of the earth. That's one of the few pictures that, that he gives us of what he wants his church to be like. 
And it shows up not just here in the Sermon on the Mount, it also shows up in a couple of the other Gospels, Mark and Luke. So it could be just a colloquialism. I remember when Meg and I, when we uh, went to pastor a church in, in West Virginia, uh, sort of a, a smaller, more traditional church, the, the, the leader of that, uh, of that area, that district was talking to me about, he said, Brad, you know, you're, you're going to love these folks. They, they're, they're just the salt of the earth kind of folks. You guys ever heard that? You know, it's, it's a phrase that we use, and it just, what it means is these, these, these folks are just good old-fashioned, down-to-earth, hard-working people. That's what salt of the earth can kind of mean. You know, blue-collar, most of them, just honest, ordinary people. So maybe Jesus was saying that to you and I, that we are kind of the, you know, just the, the ordinary, uh, good old-fashioned people. But I, I'm, I'm thinking he probably had something else in mind when he's talking about that. You see, Jesus undoubtedly knew a lot about the properties of salt. Not that he was a scientist, not that he was a, a, a chef or anything else, but I think, his, I think he knew it probably a little bit more than we tend to, and I'm sure his listeners did as well. And Jesus, of course, being the master teacher that he is, he's going to use these sort of practical, hands-on, earthly things to communicate uh, sort of heavenly truths, heavenly values. And he could have said a lot of things. He could have said, you are, you're the sugar of the world. I wish he would have said that, you know? You're sweet. People love you. People put you in their coffee. I wish he could have said that. You're the sh- there's, there's nothing bad about sugar, apart from, you know, kind of has some extra calories. You know, maybe he could have said, you're the vinegar of the earth. Fill in the blank. But he didn't. He said, you are the salt of the earth. And I think he was saying a couple things, but I want to give you two immediate, I want to tell you a little bit about it, but first two immediate observations you need to pay attention to. <clears throat> the first thing that he says is this. He says, you are, and that's a plural form, meaning you all are. Or in the South, what do we say? Y'all. Y'all all. Y'all all are the salt of the earth. And that's a corporate command. Anybody ever put a grain of salt on your food? Oh, you sprinkle salt on. It's meant to be together. Jesus says this to all of us together. That in a community of faith, in a community of faith, we exercise this kind of influence in the world. Y'all all are the salt of the earth. He also says this, of the earth. You know? It also goes with the light of the world. Notice he doesn't say we're not just people with influence in our homes. He doesn't say you're the, you're the salt of your family. You're the salt of your own little Christian church and your own little Sunday school small group or whatever else. Jesus says you are to be the salt wherever you go in the earth, in the world, in the marketplace, in your office, in your school, in your neighborhood, in all these spheres of social life. When I was in college, for one spring break, I had a chance to spend... Did I knock it off? Oh, there we go. Keep still. I'm like an Italian. I can't talk if I don't move my arms. That may have been offensive. We're, we're going to censor that out there, right? It's it. Come on. I would say I can say that because I'm Italian, but I'm not. Oh, Lord Jesus, forgive me. <laughs> So back, back in college, I, had a, I just got to spend a couple of days at a, there's a monastery just down the road in Bardstown, um, Gethsemane, Trappist Monastery down there. 
um, was able to stay there a couple days. There's, there's, really, there's some really incredible things about those, those kind of institutions, and I'm glad that they are part of our church tradition, not our church tradition, but I'm glad they're part of the, the larger church tradition. But all of God's people are not meant to be in monasteries. A few are, a few may be called to that, but all of us are not called to be sequestered away from all the difficulties of the world. We're meant to be in the world, engaged with the world. We're meant to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So having said those things, I think Jesus wants us to understand a few things about the Christian life. He's using something ordinary to do it. Here's the first thing about salt. It is what? It enhances flavor. That's right. Here's the cool thing. Salt, we, we're not meant to highlight ourselves, but something else. We are not the point. We are here to make something better. We are to enhance the flavor of something. Now, I know that's, that, that kind of, it's a little bit of a contradictory statement because we really can't make the kingdom any better than it is, right? We can't make God better. It's not like God is lacking until we come along. But we are, not the, our, we are not the point. We are not to bring attention to ourselves. We are to enhance something else. John says that. He says, I must what? I must decrease. He must increase. Meg and I, we love to cook. But we've never made a salt-based recipe. We have never made salt loaf. We've made meatloaf that has salt in it. We've never made salt pie. We've never had, you know, crispy glazed salt. Because salt is not the point. No one ever takes a bite of corn on the cob and says, mmm, that's some delicious salt on there. Maybe you, maybe you do. I don't. I want the corn. Right? I'm eating popcorn watching a movie and I'm like, oh, this is so good. I'm, oh, I just, I, uh, you know, we, we could kill, we, we don't eat, we don't go after the salt. Salt is there to make things taste better. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says something similar, not about taste, but about aroma. But it's very similar. These same kind of senses coming into alignment. Paul, the Apostle Paul says this, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 14. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ, Brian was talking about this. Always leads us in what? Triumphal procession. Isn't this awesome? And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. It's not the knowledge of us everywhere. We're not meant to go around you know, proclaiming how great we are. We don't sing that song, how great we are. We don't sing that. It's how great thou art. So we're the salt of the earth. We're meant to enhance the flavor of the King in the eyes and the minds and the hearts and the mouths of the people around us. So what this means is that King's Church should enhance a Christ-like atmosphere in the world around it. Are the places of Lexington better because we're a part of it? Is your workplace have more good, godly flavor because of your presence there? Is your school have an aroma of goodness about it because you're there. Salt is meant to, to enhance. We're meant to enhance. Second thing is, salt is also a preservative. We don't do this so much. Now we have a lot of chemical preservatives. Um, 
It's hard to imagine a time before refrigeration. My kids, it would blow my kids' minds to take the refrigerator out of our home. I think their little heads were like, what, what, what would they do? All they do is just open it up and look and close it and they open it up as if something else has materialized in the two minutes before. But in the ancient world, up until the recent time, we didn't have refrigeration, but a good salt rub would help preserve things, especially meat. There's a story told, a former uh, president of Asbury University, uh, Dennis Kenlaw, a library is named after him, evangelist, uh, scholar, author. He tells a story growing up in the mountains of North Carolina. He says when he was young, it was often his job to go and help prepare uh, salted hams for the season. After the end of a, a processing season, his mom would, mom would call him in and say, Dennis, here, you need to rub this ham down. We're going to get it into the, into the storehouse for the winter. <clears throat> here's a ham. It's been, you know, it's been smoked, and here's some salt, and go ahead and pack it with salt, and we'll get it ready to go, and he would do that. And <clears throat> He says one time after that winter, his family was getting ready for, uh, for <laughs> they're getting ready for a great ham dinner. They were so excited about this, and he was just anticipating this. This is back in the you know, 30s and 40s. He didn't just run to the grocery store and buy it. And he said, and his mom said, Dennis, run and get that ham. So he goes down, he pulls out this eight, nine, 10 pound ham, pulls it up there. And he says later on, he says, I knew as soon as they cut into that ham that something was wrong. He said, the smell nearly knocked us to the floor. And the insides were alive with maggots. And he said, my mom could have said many things, but she simply said, Dennis, not enough salt. I think that's probably the true of God's church in the United States is we are just not salty enough. And here's why I think that. Let me tell you some statistics. First of all, I'll tell you some statistics about family. These are a few years old, but I promise you they have not gotten much better. First one is this, 33% of first marriages end within 10 years. One out of three. Forty-three percent of those marriages end in fifteen years. Let's talk about fatherless homes. One out of every three children in America lives in a fatherless home. If you are an African American, you've got a sixty-five percent chance of growing up in a fatherless home. Sixty-five percent chance. If you're black in America, you have a majority chance of not having a father in your home. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. USA has the highest teen pregnancy rate in the world. One third of girls becoming pregnant by the age of 20. That's just a few statistics. So let's talk about churches. At the time of this survey, Barna, percent of churches growing. Anybody want to guess? 15% of churches growing in America. 85% of churches in America are not growing. Percent growing by conversion. 2.2%. Come on! U.S. population who don't attend church regularly, this says 45%. I think it's closer to 55% by, by 2020. 
the Americans who don't attend church doubled in the last 15 years. In America, 3,500 to 4,000 churches close their door each year. We talked about this statistic when we planted King's Church. We are closing churches at a four-to-one rate. For every one church that we plant in America, we're closing four churches. If there's something wrong with society, you know what? Y'all, we can spend a lot of time. We can, <laughs> we can spend a lot of time playing the blame game. We can blame the secular humanists for polluting our Judeo-Christian worldview. How dare you come in? How dare you come in and, 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 and tear down the fabric of our society? We can blame Hollywood for billion-dollar pornography industry. We can blame the left-wing elite. Maybe we can blame the right-wing elite, depending on where you are. Find, find a politician and blame them. Truth is, though, you and, I, you and I, we are the ones that God has put the burden of preserving society on us. If there's anybody that's to blame for those statistics, it's the church of Jesus Christ in America. It's me. I'm to blame for it. We are called to be salt. Wouldn't it be great, though, if King's Church could be a place that brings real, lasting change into the families of Lexington? I say that with a smile because I see it happening already. I know it's happening. I know we're doing it. I know other churches are, are doing it as well. I know that there's this movement of just uh, of a radical surrender to, 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 to the mission of Jesus Christ to be salt and light. When Jesus says, you're the salt he's given us, he's saying, look, don't, don't try to escape the responsibilities. Don't escape the challenge of the world. Transform it. And he says, I want to take you and I want to rub you into the very heart of society. I think King's Church can be that kind of a place. Let me give you a last one here. Salt, symbolic of a sacrificial covenant. Here's where I get this. I get it from Leviticus 2.13. Leviticus, boy, this sounds boring if you never, you know, if you haven't studied the Old Testament. We're doing an Old Testament class on Zoom. We're three weeks into it. I'm beginning to love, I just love the Old Testament more and more. Some of the books that I once thought were really boring, they're just coming alive. You know, Leviticus is one of those. God has been giving them some instructions about their, their, their sacrifices and their offerings. He talks about, okay, when you do this thing, here's how you need to do this sacrifice. And he gets in to this whole grain offering. He says, you shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. So he's told them you need to include this. It's basically a bread recipe. It's weird. It's like we're, we're sacrificing bread to the Lord. You got oil, you know, you got flour, you got water, you got all this stuff. And the Lord says, oh, by the way, put some salt in there. Oh, by the way, don't forget to put the salt in there, says the Lord. Don't let it be missing from your grain offering. See, salt would be added in to this mixture to prevent any residual yeast. They didn't put yeast in. Yeast is, a, yeast is symbolic. The leavening, the yeast is the stuff that makes bread rise, right? It spreads. And in the Old Testament, it's very symbolic of sin. It's symbolic of just, uh, of, of, of rebellion. It's symbolic of all the stuff, impurity, all the stuff that God is not. And, God, and to throw some, <clears throat> excuse me, to throw some salt in sort of helps to neutralize any residual yeast that might be in the bread. And God says, don't even put any yeast in, but even go a step farther and throw some salt into the mix. 
Salt's also going to add a lot of value to this because in the ancient times, salt was pretty pricey. Now it's really cheap. Go to Aldi, and how much is it for like a little round container, Megan? Is it like, what, 80 cents maybe? Maybe a dollar, maybe whatever it is. It's like nothing now. In the ancient world, it wasn't that way at all. It was pricey. So when Jesus calls us the salt of the earth, I wonder if he's suggesting the same thing that Paul is later on when he says you're to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. A life given over to God, no conditions, no reservations. And there's one more purpose that I kind of brought to my attention in recent years. If you've ever heard of Ray Vanderland, or maybe you've seen those videos, uh, um, I forgot what they're called now. Faith lessons, that's what they are. Bible study, DVD, small group kind of lessons. Ray kind of goes around the different parts of, the, of, of Israel and he pulls out different areas or objects and he talks about the sort of the background of one of these. He talks about salt in one of these. He says, he says in, in the ancient world in Jesus' time, there was not a lot of wood, not a lot of wood to build with, not a lot of wood to burn. You didn't have that. If you've ever been to Israel, you'll see that, you know, there's, there's, there's not deciduous forest growing in every part of it. Um, and he says the average family would have sort of a, 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 an oven made out of clay, much like the, they have out in the, the Pueblos of, of the Southwest. They have a small oven made of clay, and they would find things to burn. And they would find that, uh, that animal dung burned quite well. In the absence of wood, you find some cow patties. You bet. Nice, big, dry ones, you know. Oh, man. They would throw those things in the fire, and they would... They'd catch on just like that, but they would find that these things would burn a little bit. They would burn out a little bit too quickly, and it really wasn't good. But they found by adding salt into that dung, <laughs> that fire burns slower and hotter and brighter. All right, I'll say it again, y'all. By adding salt to the dung, it burns hotter and slower and brighter. Is it possible that Jesus says, you're to be mixed in with the filth of the world so that they might, for the glory of God, burn slower and brighter and hotter for Jesus? I don't know. Wouldn't surprise me. Sounds like something Jesus would say, wouldn't it? British columnist and a renowned atheist named Roy Hattersley. This is my last story, by the way. Brian, where are you? Come on up. Let me, I'll, I'll pause here, too, because I want to I encourage um, any of our online Facebook friends, if you've got any prayer needs, um, I want you to post those, if you would. You can post those into the comment thread. We want to pray for you. We'll have some people that are, that are praying here. Um, and you can post those there in the comment thread, or you can private message us if you would prefer to do that. And we'll pray for those. If you prefer it to be private, you can just mess, private message us and we won't bring any attention to you or your situation. But we want to pray for you. So you can, during the last couple minutes here, um, you can post those there as well. Our worship team is coming up. A, a British columnist and a renowned atheist named Roy Hattersley, he's describing, he writes this article called Faith Does Breed Charity. He's an atheist, keep that in mind. He's got some surprising revelations he was observing following Hurricane Katrina. And he's down there, he's watching this relief effort 
of that devastated region. And he begins his article by lamenting this absence of all the rationalist societies. He says, where are all the atheist clubs? Where are all the skeptics and the free thinkers? Why are they not here helping in the wake of this natural disaster? And he's one of them himself. He's calling out his own. He says, where are the ones that are, where are my friends? Where's my tribe? And then he says this. He says, civilized people do not believe that drug addiction and male prostitution offend against a divine ordinance. He says, civilized people, we don't believe that. So I guess that makes you and I, you and I must be uncivilized. He says, but those who do, meaning Christians, are the men and women most willing to change the fetid bandages, replace the sodden sleeping bags, and probably most difficult of all, argue without a trace of impatience that the time has come for some serious medical treatment. He says, the only possible conclusion is that faith, listen to this, faith comes with a packet of moral imperatives that while they do not condition the attitude of all believers, they influence enough of them to make Christians morally superior to atheists like me. And we moved down to the Gulf Coast in the years following Brian, you lived through it. Your own testimony is incredible. Would it be a stretch to say that Hurricane Katrina was probably the church's finest hour down there on the Gulf Coast? Serving the poor, serving meals. The greater church. Absolutely. The greater church, absolutely. absolutely. So I believe this. I believe that we are God's gift to the world. And it's a gift that comes with a price. We pay the price. We pay the price to be salt. We pay the price to be light. It's who Jesus is. It's what he wants for his church. We've not been sent here for ourselves. We've been sent for others. And in, in giving ourselves away, boy, we really come alive. That's the beauty of it. In dying to ourselves, we really come alive again. Amen? And giving ourselves away, we are filled up. It's crazy how the gospel is. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. As we get ready to open our doors next week, we need to, I need to remind myself, and we need to remind one another that this house that we're in is great and wonderful, and we're thankful for it, and we're going to steward it well, but this is not the church. It never was the church. You are the church. You have the kingdom inside of you. You have power and authority inside of you. You have salt and light inside of you. And God's saying, look, it's just wherever we go, be salt, be light. Amen. And I want to pray for us here. And then I'm, if there's prayer needs that come in. If 
we can pray for you here, those of you that are here, um, I want to ask that you come down um, just to this side here, and we'll, we're going to maintain some space if that's okay. Um, if you're if you're more comfortable with that, then we'll we'll allow you to kind of keep some space there just for um, for health reasons. But if we can pray for you about anything at all, um, I know several several of our prayer team will be down here for that as well.